How are you guys doing today? Good morning. There is a, a saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. And I think that holds up well with sculptures too. I like sculptures. The, there's a certain sculpture I think you guys, some of you may have seen. And it's, it's really thought-provoking to me. It's a sculpture of a man who's holding up a hammer in his right hand above his head and a chisel in his left. And he's carving himself out of stone. I guess some of you could say he's chiseled. <laughs> Didn't know how well that would go over. So, <laughs> the title of the sculpture, though, is interesting. It's the self-made man, and it captures the prevailing ideas today that the world holds about themselves. Man, according to the world, created themselves. They are the master of their own destiny. Man charts his own course, paves his own path, and answers to no one along the way. Humanistic ideas of self-sufficiency and self-creation just permeate every aspect of society. And as young people, you can't escape it. In fact, I would even say that you are the most pressured by society to carve yourself out of stone, to make yourself. They say, no one gets to tell you who you are. Not your parents, not your teachers, not your pastors, not even society, no one but you. So here's your hammer, here's your chisel, go make yourself. Which leads us to a question. Who are you? Who are you? Are you really just a clump of matter, molecules, just appearing here for random chance? So it's up to to you to determine your fate? Or were you made for a purpose, by design, with intention, with care? Boys and girls, I would suggest to you that trying to understand yourself apart from God is like trying to look in the mirror without the light on. Apart from God, it is impossible to know who you are. So this morning, we're going to flip the switch, turn the light on, and take a good look in that mirror. So turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Beginning in verse 1. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. 
When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. And also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Abba, Father, we humbly approach your word with trembling. Lord, we pray that you would illumine our eyes to see Wonderful things out of your word. We, I pray that you would help me to exposit the psalm and teach faithfully your word to these kids. And that they would have hearts to listen and to hear your word and to know themselves by truly humbling themselves and coming before you and your word and submitting to it. In Jesus' name we pray. I want to begin in the middle of this psalm. We're going to look at verse 3. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established. The psalmist David is the one who wrote this. He's writing this hymn, and most commentators will tell you that he's writing this psalm looking at the night sky. Um, and they say that because he, only, he doesn't mention the sun at all. He just says the stars and the moon that he has made. But he is just enraptured by the greatness of nature. And you and I have been in this position before. You're looking at the, the stars, especially here in the gorgeous camp that we have. And you look up at the sky and you see all the beautiful stars and the moon. And it just it fills you with awe. So David here, he's overwhelmed by beauty. The beauty and the awfulness of, of nature. And yet... Despite the vastness of the stars and the, the seeable galaxies that David um, observes here, the psalmist, he, he knows that they are but the works of God's fingers. The works of your fingers, he says. What, what the psalmist wants to convey here is that the greatest, mightiest star in the universe was a small thing for God to make. So I have a little bit of homework for you with that in mind. Tonight, go outside and look at the sky and remind yourself that that was merely finger paint for God. Then David transitions with that thought in mind, which, which clearly just consumes him. And he asks this question, what is man that you are Mindful of him, or you remember him, and the son of man that you care for him. If the moon and stars were so easy for you, almighty God, then how much more am I? In fact, David goes further here. What, who am I? What am I? Just dots in a gargantuan universe. It's that question that David asks that I want to present before you Today, what is man? Who are you? What are you doing here? And in asking that question, I believe we'll arrive at a very important aspect of humility. Humility relies on an accurate understanding of who you are before God. 
Like I said before, you cannot know yourself without God. And this understanding of who and how God has created you will yield humility. So let's begin. From Psalm 8, we're going to look at three parts of the creation of man. What he was made from. What the role he was made for. And the purpose of his creation. And I want to show you that you not only should be humble, but humility is in a, in a way the natural state of humanity. Put it another way, God intended you to be humble. I would argue that you're not truly living up to what it means to be human if you're not humble. Here's the first point. God created you from dust. God created you from dust. The psalmist asks that question, what is man here? The most basic answer to that question is kind of alluded to in this text. And I'll show you what I mean by that. Psalm 8, you may have noticed, is just a psalm that has been written with Genesis in mind. With Genesis 1 through 2. David is writing this with the creation account in mind. So, it's the Genesis we turn. Go to Genesis 1. I'm going to just read verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator of the universe. God is the one who laid the foundations of the world and placed the stars in the sky. He made time, space, matter. All that is comes from Him, including you and me. And look at verse 26, next page. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And then verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we're going to put a magnifying glass on this by turning over to chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to take a closer look at the creation of man. Then Yahweh, in verse 7, Then Yahweh, God, formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. Man was formed out of the earth, created and crafted by God from dust. Not only did God give Adam, not only did God make Adam from dirt, he also named him after it too. He gave Adam a name that just literally means dirt. Man and Adam both come from the Hebrew word for dust, for dirt. I don't think God gave Adam that name just because he liked it. He gave him that name to remind him where he came from. Dirt. Here I want you to notice something a little bit fascinating. Think about this for a moment. God could have chosen anything else to make man out of. He could have chosen gold. I mean, not too far from the ground that Adam was made from was a land just littered with precious jewels and gold. In verse 10, we see that a river, in chapter 2 of Genesis, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pashan, and that one went around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Now the gold of that land is good, and the delium and the onyx stone are there. Yet God 
instead of the nearby gold or precious stones, he chose the lowest particle on the elemental table. He chose dirt. Lowliness is the natural posture of man because he was made from dirt, lowly dirt. It's the position God intended you to take. God even shows his compassion on mankind in Scripture. Get this, because we were made from dirt. God has compassion on you because he knows how small and frail you are. In Psalm 103, 13 and 14, we read, As a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our form. He remembers that we are but dust. God remembers he made you from dust. And he has compassion on those who fear him because they remember that they are but dust before an almighty God. Those who remember who they are, what they're made of, humble themselves before the God who made them. Here's a humbling thought about God. He gives the dirt meaning. God does something to mankind that he didn't do to any other animal. We read in Genesis 2 verse 7, and God breathed into his nostrils, man's nostrils, the breath of life. He breathed his breath of life into his lungs. And so in some mysterious way, mankind is made from the earth and from his creator, stamped into his being, is the image of God. Man, on the one hand, is a representative of the dirt, of the earth. But then in some mysterious, glorious way, he's a representative of God as well. As a creature of the dirt, your only meaning comes from the God who created you. You're nothing apart from God. But there's a privilege in being human. God has creatively and carefully crafted you. And this should just bring us to our knees in humility that the God who breathed out the stars, the sun, moon, and all the hosts of heaven would stoop so low to form us and to breathe life into us. Who are we that God should even take special care in knitting each one of us in the womb. It's not just Adam that he formed. It's all his children too. We see in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance. And in your book, all of them were written the days that were formed for me. When as yet, there was none of them. 
You aren't just biology taking its course. You are meticulously planned and providentially made to be conceived and woven together by God himself. He has created you exactly the way you are now. The way you were meant to be. The humble, the lowly, see that all of life is from their creator's hand. They, they rejoice to see themselves in the body God has made for them. And they accept it. The proud, on the other hand, reject God's design. Maybe you struggle with your appearance or looks. For some men, young men, maybe you wish you were faster, like so-and-so. Maybe you wish you were smarter, like so-and-so. But could I suggest to you that God made you exactly how he wanted you to be, with the gifts and abilities that you have that would bring him the most glory. The humble accept God's design. And here's something marvelous about God. He doesn't really do what he ex- we expect. What man in our own human wisdom thinks is best. You would, you would think that if God was going to make something in his image, maybe the finishing touches on his creation, you would think that he would choose material that would be, well, maybe a little bit more marvelous. Majestic? I mean, this human's supposed to be in God's image, after all. Wouldn't you want something more glorious than, let's say, the most beautiful angel ever created? But no, he chose dirt. Isn't that a humbling picture? The great God of the universe condescends to care for and even think about humanity. I love what John Calvin said. Those who do not marvel at the fact that God would stoop so low to care for humanity are, and this is a direct quote, stupid. R.C. Sproul was on a panel discussion, and uh, someone asked the question, why was God's punishment on Adam and Eve so severe? And his answer to that question has now become a meme. I actually have it saved on my phone just in case I ever need to use it. You know, but he, he, he answered, his response was, why was God's punishment on Adam and Eve so severe? This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God after that, God said, on that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But instead of dying that day, he lived another day. And then another day. And the punishment was so severe. And here's the part that's the, the meme. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> he goes on to say, this is what is wrong with the American church. Today, we don't know who God is and we don't know who We are. When you truly know who you are and know who God is, you have no other choice but to be humble. 
Not only were you made from dirt, but you're dirt that rebelled against the hand that created you. When Adam sinned, what did God do? He showed mercy on him, yes, but in the curse, he reminds him of something. Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face, Adam, you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Point number two, God created you for dominion. Turn back over to Psalm 8. Let's look at verse 5 together. Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the animals of the field, the birds in the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. God has established man as the crown jewel of his creation. David pours out his heart in humble resignation before God because he, he knows His form, he knows he was made from dirt, yet God has made him, has made mankind in general, dominion over the earth. But previously we saw that what God has made you from, but now we're going to look at the job description that God has assigned to mankind. To rule the works of God's hands. You were made to have dominion over the earth. Yet, not only in the sense in which you work it, not only in the sense where you cultivate the earth and multiply and you're fruitful and multiply and produce and have children, but in the sense that you rule over it as a representative of God. You were meant to mediate between God and creation and the earth. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. You are his Imprint, you are his representative. Yet the whole Bible points out the fact that man has absolutely failed at having dominion over the earth and failed at representing God. Man has not truly had dominion over the earth as a result of sin. Instead, we see a struggle between man and creation. The earth doesn't willingly submit to man. That's why you need to be careful when you go out hiking. Because literally everything is out there trying to kill you. It's been forced to submit to sinful humanity. In Romans, we see that Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Earth submits to man insofar as mankind violently, ferociously, aggressively makes it submit. He has to work to have dominion over the earth and work very hard. We see in Genesis 3, after man fell into sin... Then to Adam, God, he said, I mean, then to Adam, he said, God said, 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. In fact, the Lord has even put a fear of mankind in every single animal. After the flood, we read, And the fear of you... And the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground. And all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. The fear of man just permeates everything in creation. Unless you are tempted to think highly of yourself here as the crown jewel of God's creation, Romans 8 tells us that creation groans and eagerly waits for God to redeem it because of you. Man is not the ruler of this world. Yeah, he forfeited that right. Rather, the man ruling the world, this world is in the grasp and dominion of the devil. Three times Jesus calls The devil, the ruler of this world. And Paul calls Satan the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. At the fall of man, there was a transfer of power between man and the devil. Man, after rebelling against God, came under the bondage of Satan. That was the devil's intention, to build his own kingdom. We read in Isaiah 14, 13 about Satan's prideful agenda. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will make myself like the most high. Rather than mankind representing God, the God of heaven, now they wage war against him by representing Satan. Notice the similarities between the devil's sin and then man's first sin. I will make myself like the Most High. And then Satan's lie to Eve in the garden, you shall be like God. Both of these come from one root sin, pride, a desire to be in God's place. Satan refused to accept that he was nothing more than a creature before God. And that's why pride is just so unnatural. I would even say pride is demonic because it comes from the devil. The heart of pride isn't simply looking out for yourself, or or doing what's best for you. The heart of pride instead, it, it comes from a deceptive heart that tells you, you should be God. When you are prideful, you are really allying yourself with the devil. Notice what made the devil fill his heart with pride and seek to oust God in Ezekiel we see this description of the devil. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. You were in, the, in Eden, the garden of God. 
Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the, and the diamond, the, the beryl, and the onyx, and the jasper, the lapaz, uh, lapis lazuli, the, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, and the workmanship of your settings and, and sockets was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Satan was the most beautiful creature imaginable. And instead of seeing his purpose to glorify the Most High God, he started really thinking how marvelous he was and how he should have been the Most High God. His focus shifted on the goodness of his creator and began thinking on his own goodness and beauty. Pride is the devil's work. It is seeking glory that can only be ascribed to God and ascribing it to yourself. Maybe, and this is just my own conjecture here, maybe what made Satan so offended was the fact that God decided to make Something else in his image. The crown jewel of his creation. Maybe the devil was so offended because God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And what was Satan's gambit? Really, I want to be like God. But God didn't choose the jewels and topaz, and diamond, and beauty that was Satan was clothed in to represent himself. He didn't make man out of light. He didn't make something more marvelous in appearance than Satan was. No, instead, he stooped down to the most common substance again and created humble man. God uses the base Things of the world to confound the great, the small, the weak, to confound the strong. We know that Christ has come to dethrone Satan and will one day bind him, but Christ, speaking to his disciples before his crucifixion, so now judgment is upon the world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out, so we know Satan Days are numbered. Yet it's man's sin that forfeited that right to dominion in the first place. As a man, you are humbled by the fact that you failed to bring the earth under dominion. But you can also be humbled by the fact that someone has fulfilled that role for you. Christ has fulfilled that role for you. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 5. The author of Hebrews is making the argument that Christ is above the angels. He's making the argument why you shouldn't be worshiping angels, but uh, he uses this verse. He quotes verse 5 of Psalm 8. And he applies this to Christ, to the Messiah. 
For he, starting in verse 5, did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. The author of Hebrews shows us that Psalm 8 is pointing to the better man. It's pointing to the second Adam. It's pointing to Christ. Now the psalm is starting to make a little bit more sense. It's not only... Humanity, David is talking about. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. Who was made lower for a little while than the angels. By taking on flesh. And becoming man. God created you from dust. God created you for dominion. Point number three. Look at Psalm 8 verse 1. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. The first thing I want to draw your attention to here is the fact that man was made to praise God, to bring him glory. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isaiah 43, 22. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The word doxology comes from the words meaning glory and to speak. To speak glory. God's ultimate purpose for your life is to give Him glory. You were made from the dust of the earth to rule over the earth. For the ultimate and overarching purpose of giving God glory. We see elsewhere in scripture that praising God is what the humble do. Turn briefly to Psalm 34 verse 1. Psalm 34 verse 1. Just a couple pages over. We see... I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. Now that may seem like basic Christianity. I'm sure you all have heard that before. Yes, my purpose is to glorify God. But this psalm points to a very interesting aspect of how God uses you to bring Him glory. God specifically chooses to bring Himself glory through the lowly, through the humble. Let me show you. Look at verse 2 again from, of chapter 8, Psalm chapter 8. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength. Wait a minute. Infants, especially nursing babies, aren't very strong. What are you saying here, David? 
I mean, I have two of them in my house right now. Literally, one. The, the, the word for infants here means like under, three and under. And the nursing babes is, you know, they, it's, it, it's like one year, uh, one year old and younger. So I have two of them in my house right now. They're not very tough at all. <laughs> Especially the nursing babe. She's completely defa- dependent on my wife. Basically, to understand, if they can get into Disneyland, then they qualify here for free. If they can get it in Disneyland for free, they qualify here, okay? Don't ask me how I know that. Okay, um, David here, he could be referencing, which a lot of people think, he could be referencing the Abrahamic covenant because God has promised that he would make the children of Israel more than the sand of the sea, and so there's strength in numbers, so that's what he could be referring to. But uh, David... He could be referring to Israel's national strength in numbers, and having babies makes the nation stronger. Jesus, though, defines this psalm for us. Jesus quotes this psalm to the Pharisees when they became indignant over the fact that young boys in Jerusalem began worshiping him and singing praises to him. He responded to them, Have you never read of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have established praise for yourself. When Jesus quoted this psalm in Psalm 8, he wasn't saying those boys were three years old and under. You're not a baby. You're not a nursing babe. He wasn't offending them. Those boys were probably around 13 years of age. Those boys were most likely there for their bar mitzvah. It was Passover week. And they would just have been initiated into manhood as students of Scripture. What David is saying here isn't necessarily the age that God has chosen to bring him praise. David is being poetic. He's using language to state the least, the youngest, what's weaker than a baby. Jesus compares the young boys to the Pharisees who should have known the word. They should have known that he was the Messiah. But instead, these boys who were just initiated into students as Scripture knew that Christ was the Messiah. That Jesus was the Messiah. And they worshipped him. And they sung his praise. They were infants. And the Pharisees were the adversaries. David is pointing to a biblical reality that's just all over Scripture that God chooses the weak, the frail, to sing His praises, to tackle the strong, to humble the proud. God will not allow any pride before Him. He will not let anyone take His glory. Proverbs 29.33 A man's lofty pride will bring him low, but a lowly spirit will take hold of glory. God uses infants to trump infidels. God makes it his occupation to humble the proud. It's almost like a business that he runs. If you're prideful, I... I try to stay six feet away from you. Because I know something's going to happen. I'm joking. I'm joking. But God makes it his occupation to humble the proud because he will not share glory with anyone. And pride 
is trying to steal glory that should be reserved only for him. He does this to bring you back to the lowly state you were meant to be in. Now, who exactly are the infants and the babies? Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. Paul is addressing the pride and arrogance that was sweeping through the Corinthian church. And he does so by pointing to the power and wisdom of God through the cross of Christ. The cross sets aside all human pride. Steve Lawson calls it the great pride crusher. It's offensive to the proud. It's offensive to those who think that they are wise. It's, it's foolishness to those who fool themselves. Yet to be humble to, to the lowly, what do we see? Verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen. And the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. The babies and infants are the ones that God has chosen to save. They are God's people. They are the foolish things of the world. It's not because of anything righteous or great in them. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God is glorified in saving the infants and and babes of this world to humble the proud that no flesh may boast before Him. You and I, if you're saved in Christ, are the babes. You and I are the weak things of the world that God has chosen to shame the wise. This is how God uses your lowliness to bring Him glory. The same people that no one would ever think would be saved are the ones that God saves. Now, who's the enemy that David is referring to? The adversary, the enemies that God uses to the lowly to destroy. If you notice, this isn't David's adversary. He ascribes this adversary to God. It's God's adversary. It's God's enemy. We could ask who is the ultimate enemy of God. It's ultimately referencing Satan. Right? Here's the irony. The great angel, who is the most glorious part of God's creation, is promised in Genesis 3 to be crushed under the seed of the woman. What does that mean? Whose feet does that refer to? You guys may think, yeah, it's Christ. Yes, it is. It is Christ. He's the seed of the woman. But is that all the promise refers to? Is it just Christ that that's referring to? Is that all the prophecy in Genesis 3 means? We see in Romans 16, 20 that it doesn't. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. God has chosen lowly man made from dirt to be the ones who conquer his enemy. Now we see that it's God who's doing it. 
through us, who is crushing Satan. But he's doing it with your feet. He's ultimately referring here in Genesis 3.15 is referring that lowly man usurps the serpent through Jesus Christ. Usurping the serpent as the promised Messiah. And I would argue that this is what David is thinking about when he said, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. He's not just referring to Christ there. He's referring to you as well. You were made for a little while lower than the angels. But in Christ, you shall be exalted. David recognized that God would exalt humanity through his Messiah. In Christ, all those babes and infants, you and me, the weak and base things of the world, the ones made from dirt will shame the angel of light. Look at verse 9 again. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We are brought to know who we are, how low we are when we see this truth, that God has made His name marvelous in all the earth, and He set His splendor in the heavens, and He's done it through you and me. You can't look around at the beauty of the night sky littered with stars and not come to know just how small you are. You can't. Humility and worship go hand in hand. You can't offer worship without humility. Look at David's own humility in the psalm. He says over and over, Yahweh. And this psalm is just drenched in praise to Yahweh. He says, how majestic is your name, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your enemies. David calls him Adonai, Master and Lord. Yahweh is master over all things, absolutely sovereign over creation. He owns us. He rules over us. We are to, in humility, praise him because of his sovereign power and his creation, his splendor. His majesty. Humans are creatures meant to adore. We are meant to marvel and wonder at the beauty of our God. Humility has been called a creaturely virtue. And as we have seen, we have every reason to be humble, do we not? Every reason to be brought low before God. We were made lowly On purpose to be used by God to bring Him glory. Humility is seeing yourself as God has created you in His sovereign plan and recognizing that your lowliness, your humility, is what He uses to bring Him the most glory. Because through your inability, God shows His ability. Through your weakness, He shows His strength. Through your faithlessness, He shows His faithfulness. Through your sin, He shows His grace. Through the dust, He shows His glory. You come to know yourself not by carving your own image out of, your, out of the stone. You come to know who you are 
by humbly bowing down before the word of God and listening to what God has to say about you. As a human, you were created with the purpose of glorifying your maker through the fact that you're just a lowly creature made from dirt. But here's the marvelous paradox. You were made to reign with Christ, have dominion over the earth, yet you do it as a a slave of God, humbly in obedience, doing all things in humble, glad worship and praise. You are never more like God what created you to be than when you are humbly singing praises with other redeemed brothers and sisters. When you are humbly listening and obeying God's word. You are never more human than when you are humble. Let's pray. Abba Father, we bow before you. We are so thankful for your work in the world, bringing, humbling the proud and exalting the humble. I pray, Lord, that today we would examine our own hearts and humble ourselves before you and your word and that we would take your word and hide it in our hearts and think about it. I pray, Lord, that one of these children here would think about the gospel and think about who they are in reference to your word and what your word has to say about them and that they would take it to heart and they would believe it and that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would come to the cross of Christ and hold on to his cross work, that all the good things that they have done, they would just count it as dung before your righteousness and they would throw off their own works their rags and would put on the lord jesus christ in jesus name we pray these things thank you lord for using the dust to bring you glory amen